opportunity we have to, to meet together in the middle of the week, uh, to encourage each other and fellowship, but uh, also to, uh, to spend some time studying and learning. We ask that your spirit would be with us, that you would give us uh, wisdom and understanding, especially as we uh, look to the past and um, uh, to uh, uh, Lewis's book, the, the Screwtape Letters. We ask that you would bless the study, that it would be a time of encouragement for us, building us up in the faith, and helping us to grow in godliness. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this evening, we're going to be looking at letters 11 and 12. And uh, the topics we'll be considering this evening, uh, in letter 11, we'll be looking at uh, the topic of laughter, interestingly enough. Uh, And then in the uh, second letter, letter 12, we'll be looking at the gradual path uh, to hell that Screwtape describes there. Uh, As we come to uh, letter 11, uh, you may remember from last time that um, in the patient's life, he had started to make some new acquaintances. And we talked about uh, the topic of friendship and uh, the influence that people can have on each other. And uh, in this letter, it appears that um, this friendship is developing, uh, that these new friends have introduced the patient to uh, all of their acquaintances, their, you know, their friend group. Uh, and this is something that Screwtape is happy about because these seem to be all very worldly people and um, will be the kind of influences they want to be on this guy to, to lead him away from the faith. Uh, but this then brings them to the, the topic of laughter, as uh, Wormwood had mentioned, I guess, in a previous letter about um, all the laughter that happens in their, their times together. And so Screwtape uh, takes the opportunity to talk about uh, laughter because uh, there's good kinds of laughter and bad kinds of laughter. Uh, and of course, we we understand that's uh, you know laughter can be a blessing. You know, laughter brings uh, healing to the bones. Uh, but then we also see in the proverbs and other places that um, you know the person who uh, does something and then says, "Well, I'm only joking." That that's a uh, uh, not a person to be trusted and things like that. And so uh, this is a good opportunity for us to consider and think about some of these things that uh, Lewis brings up here. In this letter, he talks about four causes of laughter, and that really is kind of um, what differentiates good and, and bad laughter is the, the cause or the reason for the laughter. Uh, the first one, uh, the first cause is the topic of joy. Uh, he describes it as, you know, um, this is something that you see first among friends and lovers reunited on the eve of a holiday. Among adults, some pretext in the way of jokes is usually provided but the facility with which the smallest witticisms produce laughter at such a time shows that they are not the real cause. What that real cause is, we do not know. Something like it is expressed in much of that detestable art which the humans call music, and something like it occurs in heaven. A meaningless acceleration in the rhythm of celestial experience quite opaque to us. Laughter of this kind uh, does us no good and should always be discouraged. So what Lewis is getting at here is that there can be, uh, in the human experience, times of a, um, a deep happiness and joy that then gets expressed in laughter. And uh, in, in many ways, it kind of seems that, you know, Lewis has a little bit of trouble defining what exactly this means. And so he paints a couple of word pictures. You know, you've got the idea of Friends and lovers reunited on the eve of a holiday, a a special time of celebration and rejoicing. People who are close that don't get to see each other very often coming together. And perhaps you've experienced this yourself in your own life. There's just such a a happiness and joy that laughter is easy. 
you know, screw tape talks about, you know, that there's a, there's a pretense of some kind or a pretext of a, a joke happens, but it's really, if you look at it, it's actually quite minor. It may not even be that funny, but it just results in this great laughter. And well, why does that happen? Well, it's because of the, the joy, just that deep seated happiness that's uh, being expressed in that moment. Uh, he compares it as well to, um, to music, how um, music can just have such deep and profound impact on us and you know, a really beautiful piece of music and can bring us to this state of just deep uh, joy. And heaven as well is something like this. Um, just the, the relationship with God, whether um, it happens in heaven itself, but I think we could even uh, expand this to include the, the relationship that we have with God. You can think about in the New Testament, you know, Paul can talk about his contentedness, his joy, this, this, this internal state of being that there's a, a happiness connected to it, not to excuse or not, not to say that it um, excludes suffering or things like that, but um, there can be in, uh, in human beings' lives this, this deep joy resulting in laughter. Uh, the one language he, uh, or the phrase he uses this is this uh, acceleration in the rhythm of celestial experience, um, which is basically a very fancy way of saying just a, you're just having an increase in your emotions of something like heaven, of that, that joy that happens, and it results in laughter. And um, God didn't create us to be miserable all the time. This is a, a good thing that we can experience at different parts in our life. We're not always going to experience it, but it's something we can experience. Um, you know, yes, we live in a fallen and a, and a cursed world, but uh, the world we live in is still a good world um, from Genesis 1. So that seems to be what, uh, what Lewis is getting at here, is that one of the causes of laughter is this, this really incredible kind of a, a taste of heaven a little bit uh, on here on earth that is just being expressed in this great, uh, incredible joy and laughter. Second cause of laughter he talks about is uh, fun. Uh, and something that uh, he talks about as being closely related to joy. Um. And he goes on to say it's a sort of emotional froth arising from the play instinct. Now, I think uh, he's probably using fun in a little bit of a different sense in the way that we would think about it, um, as fun as just being something that's frivolous and you know meaningless a little bit um, and not that important. But uh, I, think what, um, I think what Lewis is getting at is that there is something that is uh, – there is a natural and proper sense in which we can enjoy things in this life, and you can describe that as fun. And that can bring a certain happiness and joy. It may not be as deep uh, as what he's first talking about, what he calls joy proper. When he's talking about fun, he's talking about that, that play instinct. Um, I think a, a good example of this is like, uh, you know, if you have the image in your mind of a, of a dad wrestling with his boys uh, on a Saturday morning. And they're just enjoying each other. They're just having fun together, and they're laughing together. You know, it's just that that instinct of play and happiness that we are able to, to have in this life. And that's not a, a bad thing when it's when it's used properly. Now, Screw Tape does talk about how there are ways that it can be used to divert humans from something else, to distract them from something they're supposed to be doing or feeling or whatever. It, it can be used in bad ways. But it's not in and of itself a bad thing. 
And again, to go use the example of a, a dad and his boys wrestling on a Saturday morning, um, you know, not only are they laughing in that moment, but there's a there's relationship being built. There's there's love being fostered between them. The, the kids, as they're spending time with their dad, their dad is he's spending time with his kids. I mean, that's what Lewis is getting at here. You know, it, it promotes charity, courage, contentment, and many other evils, uh, as Screwtape says. And so th- this proper use of uh, just the, this playfulness of fun, um, enjoying uh, good things in this life, can produce other good things. And so that's why Screwtape says, you know, it's not really that useful. You can use it sometimes to distract and to pull away from uh from things that God wants the person to be focused on in that moment. Um, but it is something akin to joy, something good that we are able to, to experience and have in this life. That then brings them to the third cause of laughter, which is uh, the joke proper. And I'll confess, it took me a little while to kind of, uh, let me put it this way. I think I have figured out what Lewis is talking about in this section especially when he starts talking about, um, he says, I'm not thinking primarily of indecent or body humor. And so that was, that section was a little confusing to me. I think I've got it. I don't, um, if you have any thoughts, we can talk about that as well. Uh, But I just wanted to to mention that. It seems to me that in this section, when he's talking about the joke proper, um, it really connects to the, the, the second half of this part where he's talking about the real use of jokes or humor. That's what he wants to focus on. But often when we think about um, jokes, uh, you can talk about you know, all the indecent or bad humor that exists in this world. And that is uh, that does fall under this category of the joke proper, the joke as it's considered in and of itself. But that isn't what he wants to focus on. Uh, humor is bigger than just indecent humor. He wants to deal with just that that topic of jokes or humor as a whole. But he does spend uh, at least one uh, paragraph here uh, talking about indecent humor. And uh, he talks about there's two different kinds of people, and uh, part of the reason why indecent humor isn't always uh, useful in uh, pulling someone down into more and more sin is that people use humor in different ways. Uh, Some people use indecent indecent humor, and they aren't focusing on the indecency of it. They're just focusing on the joke itself, you know, the the turn of phrase, the the incongruity, or the, um, uh, you know, a lot of humor is based on irony or opposites or things going together that don't normally go together. Um, And sometimes that's all the person is thinking about. They're not thinking about really the indecency of what they're saying. I mean, you can think of uh, examples of uh, kids, especially just using uh, potty humor or things like that. You know, it's just weird and that's all it is. And they're just, you know, they're just, it's a weird thing in their mind. And they're like, oh, joke, funny. And that's, that's it. They don't really, they're not thinking about it any more than that. But then you have other people who use, uh, whose focus on indecent humor is because of, uh, their heart being wrapped up in the indecency itself, uh, which is a little bit of a different thing and, and something that's very uh, problematic. And so if you're going to be focusing on that, you got to figure out what, you know, from Screwtape's perspective, find out which one this person is. Is it someone who's just focusing on the joke or are they focusing on um, the indecency? 
But that's not his primary purpose for bringing this all up, though he talks about it a little bit. His primary purpose is to focus on um, the use of the joke or humor. What is, what is it that you can get out of the joke or humor? And so he goes on to talk about um, you know, the English and how they take their sense of humor uh, very seriously. Uh, humor is for them the all-consuming and the all-excusing grace of life. And that's really what he, he wants to get at. Um, it is invaluable as a means of destroying shame. And he uses a number of examples here. You know, you've got uh, a group of people who are going out, and uh, one man lets another pay for him. And if you're in a situation where, you know, you're at a group setting and, um, and someone uh, you end up paying for someone else because they just kind of tricked you into you paying for them and that wasn't your intention, you know, everyone else is paying individually and you didn't offer, it just kind of happened, you'd be like, well, that's not really nice that you did that. But if he has a good sense of humor, he boasts about it in a joking way and, you know, razzes uh, his friend about uh, how he was able to, um, you know, get something by them or get the better of them, all of a sudden he's, you know, you kind of excuse the mean behavior or the rude thing that he had done. Uh, it's now become, oh, he's just, you know, he's a funny guy. Um, talks about he's no longer mean, but a comical fellow. Cowardice is considered a shameful thing, but uh, cowardice that's um, told in an exaggerated, humorous manner and uh, told in a funny way, all of a sudden, you, don't long, you no longer think of that person as cowardly. You think of them as, you know, being a good storyteller. Things like that. And he goes on to make the point that you can have a person realize that you can use jokes and humor to get away with certain actions. That's what he's trying to get at here. You may have a person that tells a lot of indecent jokes, but it's worse for a person if he discovers the fact that almost anything he wants to do can be done, not only without the disapproval, but with the admiration of his fellows, if only it can get itself treated as a joke. You've got a lot of people today that will try to excuse things by trying to turn it into something funny. I mean, young people in particular, this is, uh, this is what they'll often uh, try to do. Um, and they may not even realize that that's what they are, they're doing in the end. And that, in particular, is something that Lewis is trying to, to focus on. And in his consideration of what he calls the, the joke proper, it's focusing on the use of the joke. The joke as a means to get away with bad actions. And so laughter ends up becoming kind of this cover, this ability to just kind of cover over what a person is doing and making it more palatable to other people. You know, I'm not a mean guy. I'm just, you know, I'm just a prankster. I'm just a jokester. I'm just, you know, a person that makes people laugh by doing things that aren't actually good in the end. Does that make sense? Uh, that was one that took me a little while. Maybe everyone else got it very quickly, but um, okay. He doesn't use the word uh, puritanical. Yes. He uses it in letter 10 as well as this one. And I guess that's Supposed to hold that rigid kind of yes. Um, you have to keep them rigid. You have to keep them. Yes, he uses uh, yeah, he uses the language puritanical here as well, and 
This comes back to something he's talked about before. It's the, you know, the using of catchphrases and slogans to uh, kind of insulate your behavior. You know, oh yeah, I'm not going to be that worried about um, being about what kind of company I keep because you know the only people who do that are those puritanical figures who are just you know are just all riff and, or um, stiff and rigid and and things like that. You know, we don't want to be like those people. Well, we do want to take seriously though the relationships and how it affects us spiritually. It's the same thing here. You know, if someone gets confronted about, um, hey, you're uh, you're using humor as a means to treat people badly and, and do bad things. Oh, you're just being too puritanical. You're just not appreciating good humor and things like that. It becomes a defense mechanism. You know, you just don't have a good sense of humor like I do, that I can you know, do these things. But we, we'll see that a lot throughout these letters, just those use of slogans um, that people do to insulate and protect themselves. Last cause of laughter here, uh, and this one I, I think is especially important, is the topic or the issue of flippancy. And this is the attitude of just kind of the, the complete dismissal of serious things, and in the end, just a, a laughing at it. Um, he goes on to, to talk about, you know, only a, a clever person can make a real joke about virtue or indeed about anything else. You know, it's not just easy to come up with clever jokes about stuff, especially clever jokes about serious things. It shouldn't be easy to just joke about serious things because they're, they're serious and there, there should be a, uh, a sense of sobriety about, around them. But anyone can be trained to talk as if virtue was funny. And among flippant people, the joke is always assumed to have been made. No one actually makes it. That every serious subject is discussed in a manner which implies that they have already found a ridiculous side to it. And then if this continues, it becomes a habit. The habit of flippancy builds up around a man, the finest armor plating against the enemy that I know, and it is quite free from the dangers inherent in the other sources of laughter. It is a thousand miles away from joy. It deadens instead of sharpening the intellect, and it excites no affection between those who practice it. This is the kind of person that when you try to talk to them about something serious, they just laugh it off. Just laugh it off as a big joke, something that's not that important. It's like, yeah, you know, it's just ridiculous that you, you know, oh, you believe that? Oh, that's hilarious. You know, things like that. And this can be one of the most dangerous states a person could be in. Uh, It's interesting, you know. I think there can sometimes be a sense that we would rather have a person be outwardly hostile, hostile towards the things of God than just flippant about them. Because the person, the person who's flippant just doesn't care. They just find it funny. They just find it as something that's not worth talking about. Like, you know, all those crazy people think that stuff. It's just, you know, it's hilarious. The person that's hostile, at least they feel something strongly about it, and they're probably willing to talk and engage about it. And it also may be that they feel a little bit convicted about it. That might be why they're so angry or, or um, you know, have such strong feelings about it. And a good example of this is actually in Genesis 19, when you think of Lot and his son-in-laws. He goes to them and he warns them that God is going to judge the city, and what's their response? They think he's joking. They think he's just joking with them. They're like, oh, this isn't that serious. It's just you know, something funny. Oh, old man lied, you know. He, uh, 
He's going on about God judging us. What a hoot. And they end up burning. I mean, this is a, a very dangerous attitude to have, which is why Screwtape talks about uh, this is one of the, the strongest offenses against God. If you can get a person to start to think about those serious things, the Bible, God, doctrine, all those things, heaven, hell, as just jokes, that's one of the, the safest ways to prevent someone from becoming a Christian. From that, from that perspective, outside, of course, the, the power of God. And so this is something we need to take seriously. It's, you know, flippancy in regards to the things of God is not a, is not a good thing, but actually a, a very uh, dangerous place to be in. Uh, so that's uh, letter 11. Are there any comments or questions before we move over to, to letter 12 and talking about the gradual road to hell? Any comments or questions? Yeah, Randy. Um, two things I was thinking of when you were talking about humor um, is uh, it's a pretty broad subject. There's a lot to it. Um, I never read the book, but I heard Troy wrote a whole book on it. Mm. So there's a lot of psychological uh, background. And then I thought of Rod Williams, mm. probably one of the most famous comedians. You know, yeah. Here he ends up taking his life. So it's kind of a dichotomy. Like someone who just is so good at humor and laughter, and yet inside he was so depressed he was doing drugs. So yeah. Humor can be very ephemeral. You know, so it's hard to yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's a really good point. Uh, for, for Zoom, Randy's bringing out the aspect that you know humor is just such a there's a lot there. There's a lot that's been talked about, written about, you know, Freud's written about it and things like that. And, um, and along with that as well, you know, Robin Williams is a fair, very famous comedian who then ends up taking his own life. And, you know, there seems to be a, a weird dichotomy there that he's, he's so funny. He's so good at telling the joke and making other people laugh. And yet he's, he has all those dark issues on the inside. Um, and I, I think that's, you know, Lewis does not spend as much time on this as he probably could, um, but there's a, a lot that we could you know, really talk about or, or delve into that, you know, humor can be a good thing, but it has to have its certain place. Um, and it's not, and there's a reason that Lewis makes that distinction between the joke and joy, or even just fun. They, they aren't the same. And just because someone may be good at or enjoy the turn of phrase doesn't actually connect or mean that that person has, you know, a joy, uh, especially like, you know, as Christians are, are called to have, even in difficult places, we can have a, a steadiness of character and a, a hope and joy in the Lord that the rest of the world, you know, a peace that surpasses all understanding. Uh, they've got no idea what that's like. Yeah. Uh, I think I saw a hand. Yeah. 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 It's very easy to hide behind humor and we use it as a, as a mask to disguise what we're really feeling or, or struggling with. Um, I mean, and there can be all kinds of reasons why people um, do that, but it is important 
yeah, we need to be able to, to deal with the root issues and not use humor as a mask to, to hide those things. Yeah, uh, Terry. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Um, that's yeah. That's why that that was one of the things that puzzled me um, in terms of Lewis's treatment of the court jesting. I get the distinction that he's making, or I I should say I think I get the distinction he's making there. Um, but the fact that Paul brings that up of you know put off the court the course jesting, not to be uh, defined by those things in our in our character. Um, seems to me that's a it's a bigger deal biblically than what Lewis is focusing on here, and it may be that he talks about it in another place. Um, and obviously, he's not saying everything that could be said about something, and he's trying to focus on something particular, and he kind of half addresses it but doesn't really get into it. So, um, but I think this is important, uh, especially as I've noticed it among younger generations that you you have this certain. Even among Christians, sometimes there can be a certain habit and acceptability of we don't want to be prudish, we don't want to be puritanical, we you know, and so yeah, it's fine to joke about things that are pushing that line and not really appropriate, and we probably wouldn't say in front of our parents or things like that, and that's does not seem to be compatible with what Paul's laying out as what Christian character is supposed to be like. Um, now, sometimes they grow out of it as they get older and mature. Some of it may just be a, a level of childishness, but some of it carries on into, it, it becomes a character trait later on, and that can be very, very dangerous. So. Any other questions or, or comments? All right, let's, uh, let's look at letter 12. In letter 12, uh, Screwtape starts to talk about the topic of, not, uh, of being careful of hurrying the patient and pushing him down bad paths. Um, then we need to be careful in attempting to hurry the patient, or, or the, the problem may be that in attempting to hurry the patient, you awaken him to a sense of his real position. And uh, Screwtape's encouraging him, you know, you want him to think, you, you want him to think that, you know, the choices he's making about his friends, you know, the company he keeps, the things they talk about, their joker, uh, their joking, laughing, things like that, that those are just trivial matters and they're revocable, you know. He can always, you know, change course if he wants to. You know, it's not that big a deal. And, uh, the reality is those things are big deals. They have great impacts on us. They can have uh, incredible impacts on us spiritually. And it's interesting that uh, Screwtape goes on to talk about, you know, I'm almost glad to hear that he is still a churchgoer and a communicant. You know, it's good that he's still going to church. It's good that he's still, you know, taking the Lord's Supper and things like that. You know, obviously there's a, uh, from their perspective, there's a danger. You never know how God's going to work. Um, but you don't want him to realize that he's starting to drift from what he first professed. He's professed, I am a Christian, and now he's starting to, to drift in the, the actions that he's taking. 
He says, as long as he retains externally the habits of a Christian, he can still be made to think of himself as one who has adopted a few new friends and amusements, but whose spiritual state is much the same as it was six weeks ago. And this is, a, this is important for us. Um, external actions do incredibly matter, uh, especially because they help to form habits, they build character and things like that. But they aren't the end-all, be-all, such as someone who's doing something externally that's not necessarily indicative of where their heart is. Just because someone goes to church, just because someone takes the sacraments, just because someone goes to Sunday school and all those things, that doesn't mean they're in a spiritually good condition. They may be starting to wander in different ways, and the fact that they're still doing all these externally Christian things that they're supposed to do can hide for them the fact that they're drifting. And uh, Screwtape goes on to talk about, you know, this, this person, as they're, they're, they're going down this road, you know, they're still externally a Christian, but they're starting to compromise in different areas. They're going to start to have a, and there should be a, a little bit of an uneasiness. As you know, you may not consciously be aware of it, but the person in this situation subconsciously should start to recognize there's a little bit of incongruity here. There's a little bit of contradiction. There's a little bit of, you know, this doesn't fit with this. You know, the flesh and the spirit are, are warring together. And uh, when a person starts to, to get into that state, um, you know, screw tape talks about, it. you know, there, there's two things that could go wrong with. The one is, is that you, you push him so far down the road that maybe he actually commits like a really big sin and it shocks him like, what did I just do? And then he realizes, oh, I veered off the road. I need to repent and come back. You know, it's kind of like, you know, David and Bathsheba. He doesn't recognize it for a while. Nathan goes in and is like, yeah, you're the man. And David just has that moment of realization of like, what has he done? And you get Psalm 51 and all that afterwards. Uh, the other problem would be that, uh, um, if you suppress the uneasiness entirely, um, uh, which God normally does not uh, allow Satan to do, for the, well, for the Christian will not allow him to do that, uh, then they lose a, a certain advantage as well. Um, and so there, there's a middle road that screw tape says they want to walk, and that's um, you want the feeling of ease, uneasiness to live, but not allow it to become irresistible and flower into real repentance. It has one invaluable tendency, and that is it increases the patient's reluctance to think about the enemy. When we start to drift away and compromise in some way morally, it will necessarily affect our relationship with God. You're not going to want to have the same relate. I mean, and he, does, he has a good way of putting this. One of the reasons you're not going to want to, you know, spend as much time with God is because when you start thinking of him, you're going to start to, uh, you know, face him as a holy God. Uh, and you're going to have all this, you know, subconscious guilt going on, and there's going to be a, a reluctance there. Because all of a sudden, if you, you know, if you're praying in the same way, if you're reading the Bible in the same way as you were before, what's going to happen is you're start going to get to be exposed, and all of a sudden you're going to start to become more and more uncomfortable, and there's a part of you that doesn't want that. A Christian's not going to omit everything. Uh, he says here, you know, the patient will not omit 
all these things, but he will increasingly dislike his religious duties. Um, Lewis uh, writes in a, another work of his, he has a quote, what the devil loves is that vague cloud of unspecified guilt or feeling or unspecified virtue by which he lures us into despair or presumption. Details, please, is the answer. Now, Satan wants to, to get us to be in a, in a compromising situation where we're, we're getting loosey-goosey with some of our actions and how we're living. And that will affect our relationship with God. And we've got this kind of vague feeling that there's something wrong. But we just keep going. And Satan wants us in that state where we're continually compromising, but we're not actually dealing with the specifics. We just kind of turn a blind eye to it, ignore it, and suppress it, and, and keep going. And he talks about, you know, a person in this condition is going to want you to distract him. He's going to want to be distracted from his prayers. He's going to, be, he's going to want to be distracted from all his uh, spiritual duties. And uh, you'll find it very easy. You know, you don't even need good distractions anymore. Anything will distract him. He talks about, you know, you can just get him to stare at nothing. Stay up late, staring at the fireplace, just doing nothing. But he'd rather do that than face the sin and issues that he's dealing with, which would happen if he starts to spend time with God. Nothing is very strong, strong enough to steal away a man's best years, not in sweet sins, but a dreary flickering of the mind over knows not what and knows not why. And the gratification of curiosity is so feeble that the man is only half aware of them. He goes on to talk about, you know, the, the creature is too weak and fuddled to shake off um, the state that he's in. And the sum of all this is the last, uh, you know, the second half of that last paragraph. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. I'm sure many of us have probably heard the, the proverb about, you know, how do you boil a frog? You don't throw the frog into a pot of boiling water because he's going to jump right out of it. You put him in a pot of lukewarm water. You slowly turn it up until he's boiled. He doesn't even recognize what's going on around him. That's what Lewis is talking about here, one of the tactics of Satan to try to harm Christians, and if possible, to pull away true Christians from God. It's just that gradual slope. Just compromise in this one area. Don't go too far. Just compromise a little bit. You know, compromise in some other areas. You'll start to re- uh, affect your relationship with God. You'll still still do all the outward things, but they start to lose their joy. They start to lose their significance. And you just slowly keep on going down that road, going down that road. You don't even realize where you are. Next thing you know, no relationship with God at all. You're all the way down off that path, heading towards hell. This is a very real thing that happens to people. It's a lot of people that... And actually, let me back it up to something else, too. When someone is starting to wander in the faith a little bit, start to have some issues, 
starting to have issues with their relationship with God, things like that. There's almost always a moral issue involved. I mean, just in my own experience, I haven't been a pastor terribly long, but almost all the situations I've seen, there's almost always a moral issue that's involved first. That becomes the starting point. There's a moral compromise somewhere. You know, here it is, is that he's compromised now on his relationship and friendships and the, uh, the company he keeps, all those things. And that's starting to, to, to wear on the patient a little bit. And it'll be used to start to pull him further and further away. In a lot of situations I've looked at, you know, you're, you're dealing with this external situation. There's a problem or whatever. But behind that, there was actually there was a moral issue first. And that's what started to lead to all these, these other issues. And this is something we need to be aware of. As we're, um, when we go through, um, when we go through periods of uh, distance from God, if that happens in our lives, we need to ask the question, was there a moral compromise? And we needed to address and deal with, not just kind of sail down the, the river, not thinking, not paying attention to things, just kind of ignoring stuff. But we need to ask those questions sometimes. Of course, we've talked about that, you know, our spiritual condition isn't always dictated by our emotions and things like that. but that's not uh, quite the same situation that he's talking about here. Here he's trying to, to draw us into this dreary flickering of the mind, just kind of continuing on in a fuddled state, not really realizing how dangerous our situation is. So this is something to be, uh, to be wary of and to guard ourselves against. That we don't get slowly pulled away uh, from God. All right, that's, uh, that's letter 12. Are there any questions or comments? From either of these letters, anyone wants to talk about? All right. 